Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest. I'm one of the producers for Life of the Law, which, if you didn't already know, is a radio show that looks at the intersection of law and everyday life. So I don't know if you noticed, but it's Valentine's Day this weekend. And I know we all have mixed feelings about Valentine's Day. Some of us love it. Some of us boycott it entirely. But whether there's love in the air or not, there are hearts everywhere. And it leaves me in a contemplative mood about love. So, the story you're about to hear is one that looks at how the law intersects with this highly personal arena. There are legal implications involved in who we fall in love with and how we choose to build our families. This is the story of one family, their love affair, and how they're dealing with the limitations of family law. Originally, it was produced in June 2013, and it's being re-released today, just in case you, like me, are in a contemplative mood about love this weekend. Mr. Chief Justice, the pleas of the court. The legal system, and particularly the legislative system, is often about 20 years behind culture in terms of change with families. This is Life of the Law. I'm Caitlin Prest. I always envisioned becoming becoming a father at some point. And I said, oh, yes, we'll have kids. And I thought, well, eventually, uh, much to my mother's delight, I decided that I did want to have children. I, I come from a big family. And I promised. I was actually looking into having a child on my own. Eventually, I was like, I guess, I guess I have to make good on that promise. I hadn't really gotten down to the details, but I was planning, I guess. Callie Robinson and Howard Sinclair had their daughter, Abby, in 2009. They aren't using their real names because of a unique situation that they later found themselves in. My name is Callie, and I'm a hydrologist. Hi, my name is Howard. Uh, I work in web development. They were pretty young when they got married. We have always seen ourselves as, as destined. Um, at least I did. I, she's more of a pragmatist. <laughs> he, was, he was my one, and so... I never thought that there would be anything else besides that. It was like we realized that we belong together. Hi, my name is Mallory, and I am a geochemist. I kind of felt like it was the same way with Mallory. Like, we just realized that we belong together. It was very strange to suddenly feel that feeling again. I tend to think of things in terms of fate and serendipity, and uh, it's a very bad engineering quality, but I, I still do it. I'd never really been in love with anyone before, so I was like, oh, is this what this is? <laughs> like this, <laughs> like unbearable lightness of being, <laughs> and sorry. <laughs> Mallory moves in with Howard and Callie and Abby. We definitely didn't plan to have a setup like this. It just kind of happened. We got together when Abby was two, and so then she kind of just became part of our family. Like looking back, it seems like that seemed impossible for like three people to come together so seamlessly, but that's how it felt. So Howard, Mallory, and Callie live with their daughter, Abby, in a small bungalow in a tiny town that consists of a few houses, a highway, and a Dunkin' Donuts. Today, Abby is four years old, and they've been living as a family for two years. 
The setup they've chosen for their relationship is typically called a polyamorous triad. Polyamory is an approach to relationships that accepts the notion that someone can love more than one person at once. When you love and trust people, it's, a family is an easy thing to organize. And it's the same for two people as it is for three people. Anyone who's in a, in a really functional marriage understands, like, you're two adults and you both treat each other with, with respect and you trust the other person, and it's, it's straightforward in that sense, so. While things are straightforward within the home, Outside of it, there's a lot of judgment. You know, the reactions from our immediate families were, in my case, the reaction was really negative. Um, and so the reaction in Howard's case was also quite negative. The negative reactions sometimes have legal implications. One of the most public cases was in 1998. April DeVilbis and her two partners came out as polyamorous on an MTV documentary show. Soon after, DeVilbis received an emergency protective custody order, telling her that her daughter was now in the custody of her paternal grandparents. The charge the grandparents brought against the family was moral degradation. There were no other allegations of child abuse or anything of the like. This is not the norm, but polyamorous people often have their rights as parents challenged, the same way many same-sex couples do. It's not always as extreme as having your children taken away from you. A lot of the time, it's smaller things that just make life really complicated and kind of scary when you're dealing with something as important as raising a child. And it's not only polyamorous families that face these kinds of challenges. I'm Diana Adams, and I'm an attorney and a family mediator in New York City. Diana Adams has built her law practice representing what she calls non-traditional families. I work with people who want to create family in some way that may be outside of our image of the nuclear family, a man and wife, two kids and a dog. Today, fewer than 50% of American families are married. Half of the United States is a non-traditional family. What do these families look like? You might know a few. I work with people who might be in a polyamorous triad, couples, both straight and gay couples, who might want to choose not to get married, people who want to co-parent with somebody who's not a romantic partner. Two single mothers or sisters get together and decide that they want to co-parent children and share a household. The problem that these families face is that the only way to be recognized as a family unit is to be married. To get married in most states, you have to be a man and a woman unrelated by blood, of legal age, embarking on a monogamous sexual relationship. As long as you're not already married, you can pay about 50 bucks for a marriage license and there you have it. In the eyes of the law, you're considered to be a unit. When you don't meet this criteria, but you're trying to live as a unit, raise kids or share a household, the legal system doesn't have a lot to offer you in terms of shortcuts. Depending on the state you're in, if you're a same-sex couple, you might get access to these shortcuts. We're at this interesting cultural paradox. The LGBTQ community is totally mobilized around that topic, and people are really impassioned about it, and that's fantastic. I think it's an important civil rights issue, a great public relations campaign to get people aware of just how personal discrimination based on sexual orientation can be, because people can relate to love and marriage. But for Adams, the right to marriage is not the answer. We need other kinds of benefits that don't come from whether or not the government approves 
of our sexual relationship and deems it merit worthy of getting health insurance and tax benefits. Adams is rooting for a more general legal recognition of alternative family structures, breaking away from the two people in love forever model and generating more options. But changing legislation, it's a lifetime goal for Adams. In the meantime, she's working in the legal system as it currently exists, figuring out creative solutions for those navigating the uncharted terrain of family law for families that aren't married. I think being married, you don't recognize all of the um, status that you gain from that until suddenly you're in a situation where there's a lot of questions regarding that. Sharing finances are a big challenge for Callie, Mallory, and Howard. They want to be able to do what other families do, pay taxes together, share a bank account, share health insurance, life insurance, property. Howard and Callie are already doing that, but the legal system is not set up for three people to do that. So as it stands now, Mallory is always left out. The uh, life insurance application, I was over the phone, so the guy asked me, like, who's the first beneficiary you want? And I uh, told him Howard's name, and he was like, well, how, what's your relationship? And I said, partner. And he was like, usually we reserve that for gay couples. And I was like, just wait. <laughs> and then I uh, told him, uh, and my second beneficiary is Callie, and what's your relationship, partner? And he's like, what? <laughs> child guardianship and custody is another big challenge they're facing. Since we've been together, uh, Abby has had two accidents where we ended up at the ER, and I worry about that a lot. Like, being the non-biological parent, the idea of being shut out of the room is... I just... We don't have any, there's no way to put anything in place that would guarantee me the ability to come into a, a room or be involved in our health care. The Sinclairs realized they needed a lawyer. Diana Adams was one of two lawyers listed on a polyamorous-friendly legal help webpage. They saw the other lawyer because he lived closer. They say he was terrible. Uh, his mentality about it seemed to be, how do you each protect yourselves from each other? He made us feel like we were doing something wrong. You know, when we talked about having additional children in our family, he said, don't put any of your names on the birth certificate except the birth parent. So if Mallory has a child, you don't go on the name. You, you want to cause trouble for yourself? Tell people that she is a, a, a woman that you took in out of kindness and her family, you know, her situation developed or something. We were like, Really? That, that, that's, you know, you sound like you're from the 40s. They were relieved when they found Adams. First, she started them out writing wills and healthcare proxy forms, so that in the event that one of the triad is sick or worse, there could be something legally binding that says that the chosen family, not their parents or their relatives, would make the decisions about their health, and in the worst case scenario, inherit property. Next, Adams took on the issue of sharing finances, the forms, the tax breaks, the health insurance. In this department, Adams tells the Sinclairs to abandon family law entirely. She's helping them form a corporation. What's a corporation except a group of people that have decided to work together and live together and forge their way together? What's a marriage? It's In most legal senses, it's a corporation at the legal level. They can buy property, they can pay taxes together, um, they can share common bank accounts. 
and they can buy a common health insurance. They're not trying to fit into a Judeo-Christian marriage model. They're just trying to fit into an existing legal structure that allows people to pool finances. Have you thought about names? I haven't thought about names. (laughs) We haven't talked about it. (laughs) While corporations are in many ways legally recognized as people in the U.S., forming a corporation won't help the Sinclairs with their parental status under family law. Howard, Callie, and Mallory want Mallory to be recognized as one of Abby's parents. So she, the non-biological parent, can have the same rights to visitation, custody, and care as the biological parents, regardless of whether or not they stay together. Adams drafted a co-parenting agreement, which is a document that acknowledges that they all agree to these terms. Would that be held up in a court? I don't know. That depends. All of these decisions about child custody and visitation are based on a very subjective standard, which is the best interest of the child. What does that mean? Best interest of the child could mean to a judge in New York City who's more progressive, that could mean living in a lesbian commune is a great place for a child to be. And I've had cases like that. In upstate New York, where it gets more and more conservative the further north you get, that might mean that it's inappropriate for a child to live with two parents who are not married. Adam says the best that Sinclairs can do is hope for a sympathetic judge in the event that they ever end up in family court. In her experience, though, non-traditional families try to avoid court if possible, which is why, Adam says, the legal system doesn't change. It's a vicious cycle. The legal system, and particularly the legislative system, is often about 20 years behind culture in terms of change with families. Legal precedent still favors the nuclear family as the best place for children to grow up. Adam says that decades of social science research have proven that what's most important for child-rearing is stability. A proxy for stability has been marriage, when in actuality, stability is the answer. And I think that we can create stability by allowing people more forethought and intention in creating relationships, having several options of what they can have their family look like. So I help those families where they are right now with our existing legal structure even while the law is catching up. And doing that kind of work actually helps the law to catch up. They always claim that the next thing that they accept is going to cause the downfall of society, when it seems like the next thing we accept always makes us better. Well, if we accept that you're three parents and that you all love each other and that you can all be in a relationship together, society's gonna fall apart. People will marry dogs. Yeah, right. Well, what's next, you know? Uh, Honestly, why aren't they looking forward to what's next? Isn't that what life is about? Like, the excitement of what the next thing might be? For Life of the Law, I'm Caitlin Prest. The Law is produced by Julia Barton, Katie Barnett, Shannon Heffernan, Nancy Mullane, Elisa Roth, Jillian Weinberger, Phil Wilt, and me, Caitlin Prest. We use music by Kyle Kaplan, Matthew Daher, and Todd McDonald. Our web editor is Mary Adkins. Financial support comes from our listeners, 
and the Open Society Foundations, with a special thanks to Thomas Hobank. Thanks also to Making Contact, our fiscal sponsor. For more on this story and others on the law and the legal system, or to donate to Life of the Law, visit lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvador and pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.